Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that I created a new fun little resource for you. If you've been here before, you know that I love creating stuff in Canva and I also love reading and listening to books. And what I created is my ultimate guide to my top four books related to creativity and healing that I wish I would have read in grad school. So I called it the Innovative Therapist Book Guide. It's totally free. It's going to guide you through my top four books. I bet maybe one you'll be expecting, but I bet some of the other ones you'll be pretty surprised about. So uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what your guesses were and what you ended up thinking of my top four books that I'd recommend you read. If you want to think outside the box, think innovatively about human relationships and how we can heal ourselves and heal the world. So grab it for free at drhondorp.com forward slash books. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash books. And I can't wait to hear what you think. All right, let's dive into the episode. Hi, this is Dr. Sean Hondorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert. And this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supportive along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode for today's episode. Well, first of all, welcome back because it's been a long break. If you listened to the last episode, it was quite a while ago and we took a pause for Uh, about six weeks total on the podcast, just so we as a team could regroup and kind of make sure that we weren't just spinning in a hamster wheel with doing and really making intentional shifts. So we're back and I'm really excited to share this conversation with Dr. Dina Goldstein-Silverman with you today. And we cover a number of different things. I'll I'll tell you what to expect for today, but the main point I want to make about this conversation is that it's really one that continues to remind me and feel passionate about the fact that whether you're a person navigating your own relationship with food, your health, your body size, your weight, or you're a professional supporting people in this nuanced area, the reality is we all 
come to this journey at a different place with different background and history. And I just so appreciate every one of my guests who's willing to come on and share their unique experience. So Dr. Goldstein Silverman is someone who I met in graduate school when I was a student and she was a supervisor at that time at the counseling center at Drexel in Philadelphia. And uh, she has an extensive bio. Um, She is a licensed psychologist in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, a health service psychologist with National Register and the lead psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health and an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the Cooper University Hospital and Healthcare System and the Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. And she has a bunch of varied experiences in the areas of health psychology. Um, She has a lot of experience with pre and post bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery patients and is really involved with a lot of training, has a lot of experience in interdisciplinary teams, has a lot of interaction with physicians and different medical providers. So um, her whole bio can be found in the blog post and in the show notes. So you can check that out. But our conversation really talks about, I'm connected with her personally on Facebook and she had made some comment or some post about a health at every size related talk that she gave at the medical center. So I said, okay, it's time to talk on the podcast. And she was more than willing to do that. So we have a really um, open conversation about her own journey with her own weight. I think you'll find that incredibly interesting. I just love when people are willing to share that and share how it, of course, impacts their journey as a professional. So we'll talk about that first, and um, we'll talk about her first exposure to health at every size and some of her initial impressions and how maybe initial hesitations, especially thinking of health at every size as a social justice movement and how that kind of influenced her initially because of her own personal background. We'll talk about how she sees the health at every size movement being effectively merged and really empowering with the also the management of the disease of obesity and how you know many people don't believe those things can go together, but how she sees that happening all of the time in the work that she's doing. She talks about how she does believe that there's reason to be optimistic on the ways that we are viewing weight and health, especially in a medical setting. And again, given her exposure to a variety of specialists and primary care physicians, we talk about that. It's always encouraging to hear that feedback. Um, That's my impression too, but she's more on the day-to-day in a medical setting center. We also touch on her thoughts about using GLP-1 agonist medications and what some of her patients have been telling her about their experiences. Finally, we talk about her own uh, motivations for various behaviors, including some interesting thoughts about how she has allowed herself to continue to love exercise. Uh, She calls it free dopamine and how she also has been able to shift to ensuring she goes to doctor appointments regularly because it's consistent with her values, even though that used to be a struggle for her. So it's a lot of good in this conversation. I'm so excited that you are here and let's dive in. Also, if you are a therapist, dietitian, or helping professional and you work with people with disordered eating or who are struggling with eating and weight concerns, uh, I have a free tool for you that I had way too much fun developing. So I, I developed this after a workshop we did recently. 
And um, to be honest, I don't exactly know how many people listen to this podcast that are professionals versus individuals. So uh, I'll be excited to, if you are a professional listening to this podcast, feel free to shoot me an email or say hello. Um, But if you're someone who you've been working with a client and maybe a client says something like, I really like intuitive eating, but I ultimately really want to lose weight, or in your opinion, they just, they have a hard time not focusing on weight loss and you notice it kind of gets in the way of them doing what they want to do or getting in touch with their body. And as a professional, you're not necessarily sure the best ways to guide them because maybe you understand why they want to lose weight, but you're also, um, you want the best for them and you want them to build up their own self-trust, but you're not sure what to do. You might empathize with them. You might tell them the science about dieting and weight loss and um, trying to convince them to not to diet. But ultimately, you might feel a little bit stuck. So how can you help them explore what's right for them without imposing your own agenda, which tends to backfire? So I created this free step-by-step guide to walk you through my number one favorite exercise. This is based on internal family systems theory, my favorite thing. Um, And it helps you help your clients navigate this nuanced dynamic with the different parts of them that still want to lose weight. So as a professional, it's my favorite way to help clients build trust while also taking the pressure off of me as a professional to know the exact right advice to give or say. So it's a really great tool. It's a win-win. You can grab it for free and exactly how to do it at drhondorp, D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash parts, P-A-R-T-S. So grab it for free today at drhondorp.com forward slash parts. And if you use it with a client, make sure you email me and let me know. All right. And just as a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. If you need a professional to guide you, please, please get one. All right, everyone, let's dive in. All right. So welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I have a very special guest today and I've known Dr. Dina Goldstein-Silverman for many years. Uh, She was a supervisor when I was a wee grad student in the program. So I was just kind of reviewing everything that you've done and I'm just so excited. I think we've obviously kind of stayed connected personally. And then I believe you were just sharing that you'd given a talk related to health at every size. And so I said, we got to get you on the podcast. And so here we are. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be good. Um, You know, one of the things I love doing on this podcast is bringing on people with professional training and accolades, which you certainly have in spades, but also who are willing to be open about their personal experiences because we are humans that come to the professional experiences, right? And so I think it's interesting. So I'd actually love to just start there to um, have you share a little bit about your personal journey with your own health and weight related journey. And then uh, we'll go from there. Sure. So I have been overweight since childhood. um, And 
certainly when I was growing up, um, I grew up in the former Soviet Union. I'm a first generation religious and political refugee. And growing up in Moscow in the 80s, um, it was certainly not acceptable for uh, particularly for a little girl to be overweight. And it's a culture that has a lot of shaming and judging in it, as many cultures do. So there was a lot of, you know, this is for your own good and you need to eat less and you need to move more. And then there was also a lot of feedback that was very particular to Russian culture at the time. So for example, I was about three when my mom took me for dance lessons and I was told by an instructor that my ankles were too thick for me to dance. So there was no dance lessons for me. Um, and I remember now as an adult thinking about that, like how does a three-year-old have too thick of angles? But I guess if you are being trained as a classical ballerina, you know, in the in the Soviet Union at that time, you know, certainly um, there was no, um, you know, recreational dancing the way we think of, you know, cute little dancing schools and girls in tutus now. It was either you get trained as a professional dancer or not. So, you know, and the former option was clearly not available for me. But then um, coming to the U.S. and being a teenager, again in Texas in the 90s and uh, playing a lot of sports. It I played soccer. I ran cross country. It was really um, challenging because no matter how much I worked out um, and no matter how much I dieted, and I started dieting as a preteen, I was still always in the upper end of overweight, lower end of the obese range. And I remember playing, you know, in these, you know, competitive tournaments and going to these practices and spending time at the gym and eating very little because I was always in some restrictive diet and constantly be accused uh, by my coaches, by my teammates, by family members. And in the nicest possible way, I don't think they meant any harm, constantly being accused of you must be sneaking food. Um, so it was always, how can you eat less? Um, and there was, it was always this message that food was good and food was bad. And, and was we don't believe you. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, so food was very black and white. And that's when it, when it piqued my curiosity, you know, because I remember thinking that this is not how this should be, that I shouldn't have to feel like this. This isn't right. And it was really challenging. It was really challenging. At one point, you know, struggling with restricting. I never binged and purged per se. It was more just a lot of very unhealthy restricting and, you know, being proud of myself when I felt lightheaded from hunger, which is a terrible way to feel. And then kind of uh, be becoming really drawn to this research when I was an undergrad as a psychology major and becoming really uh, drawn to disordered eating and eating disorders and thinking, you know, gosh, this, it's the culture, isn't it? It's what we uh, teach our girls. It's what we teach our women. It's, um, you know, or the, your worth is entirely based on this very particular standard. And you're a failure if you do not measure up to that standard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I met you, you were in the counseling center. So doing a lot of different types of therapy, mm -hmm. but tell me, I'm just curious how, so you were really interested in undergrad and understanding disordered eating. It sounds like how much has your career focused on eating and weight as it relates to psychology versus you also have a lot of broad experiences. And, and what did that look like for you? Like, did you want to focus a lot on that? Were you like, oh, this is feeling too close to home? I'm just curious. 
So some of it felt like a little close to home. Some of it didn't. So a lot of the, when I was in starting to be in training, a lot of what we were taught was, you know, anorexia, bulimia, anorexia, bulimia. And obesity mm-hmm. was all the way out here. And it was like, well, you're not an MD, so you don't need to worry about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sort of like, here are the sad fat people with their diabetes and their heart disease and anorexia, bulimia. And anorexia, bulimia didn't entirely fit my mold. Um, and we touched a little bit on binge eating disorder, but there wasn't nearly as much, at least that I can think of in the early 2000s that I was learning about binge eating. And it was really more focused on anorexia and bulimia, which obviously get a lot more attention because they're deadlier faster. Yeah, um, and it wasn't but, even a diagnosis yet, binge eating. Yeah I, yeah, I guess it wasn't. I mean, I think we talked about binging, but it wasn't mm-hmm. even formally discussed at that time. Um, so it, it wasn't, um, and then working in, initially, I was always really interested in health psychology and interested in comorbid medical and mental health issues. And then being diagnosed with PCOS as an adolescent, I started to think, you know, so maybe there's something to this that's biological, that's endocrine, that's genetic. And then, you know, at the time, the treatment for PCOS was, this is before metformin, this was oral contraceptives. So, which mask it, right? They mask it, but they don't change. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then I, then in training, working with community mental health and working in college counseling and working in hospitals, seeing women struggling with body image related to eating and weight sort of across the lifespan. And this was one theme that I saw very consistently and I very much wanted to address. And so then um, when I started doing more uh, work in health psychology, this became really relevant. And then by the time I was in the counseling center, it was just this plethora of women who were really suffering. They were really suffering and there were some who were, you know, I'm fat and no one will love me and no one will marry me and I will not have a husband and a child because I'm not desirable and I'm not attractive. There were adult women who were trying to conceive and struggling with infertility because of their weight. And there were all these young women who were struggling with disorder eating and just this incredible culture of silence, shame and secrecy around eating and weight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I'm curious, I didn't get exposed to health at every size and intuitive eating in my graduate training. I thought that outside, when did you get exposed to kind of an alternative way to think about weight and health in your career? What did that look like? I think I started being more exposed to it, honestly, when I started doing a lot of bariatric work. Okay. And that was really the first time. And it felt like a breath of fresh air it really resonated. And I thought, you know what, one of the things I think one of the misconceptions that I got exposed to early on in my work with a bariatric population was that here are these people that are not trying hard enough to lose weight. And the reality is, is that interviewing these patients, most of my patients have been attempting to lose and regain the same 20 pounds pretty much their entire life. And some of them have lost a great deal of weight that they would regain 50, 70, 100 pounds. They know how to diet. And many of them know how to exercise. And many of them exercise pretty religiously. Mm -hmm. And I think for myself, I exercise pretty religiously, mostly actually for my mental health, which was the way for me to enjoy exercise is rather than looking at as exercise for weight loss, it was a way to really embrace my mental health. I've done a lot of different kinds of exercise, but I really enjoy high intensity interval training. And then during the pandemic, I started uh, riding an overpriced exercise bike and I love it. (laughs) I love it. I do it religiously early in the morning, every morning. 
as religiously as I exercise and as intuitively and intentionally as I eat, and I don't deny myself things, there's no elimination of food groups. I've at my lowest weight have never been below 195 pounds. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's sustainable for me unless I were to cut my calories to an amount that would be something like 1200 calories a day, which is just yeah. wildly unhealthy. Um, and yeah. so kind of understanding that for myself and hearing what my patients are going through um, and working with them to really fit health into their life and figure out how to, not how to lose weight, but how do we reduce your A1C? How do we improve glycemic control? How do we uh, manage the symptoms of PCOS or hypothyroidism that are really untoward? You know, the, um, the hirsutism, the fatigue, the depression. How do we reduce anxiety? You know, how do we better your overall health? That whole notion of health at every size really resonates with me. Yeah. And it sounds like it did take a while for you to be exposed to it later on. You were interested in these areas, but it's like, and I think that's not uncommon. That was certainly my experience too. Absolutely. And then you find it so appealing personally and professionally because it's Absolutely. sort of like, oh, this feels really accurate. Absolutely. <laughs> this feels really true. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely on the same page there, but let's talk about sort of the I guess I don't even know if it's the flip side, but I think your talk, you sent me your slides for the talk that you had given. And I was like, oh, we have to talk, right? Um, and it was something about health at every size and talking to sort of an interdisciplinary team at your hospital. So tell me what you think, are there downsides to this social, it's really a social justice movement at, at its core, although it's very based in science. Are there downsides or are there challenges that you've faced with implementing this approach or just how it's perceived any any of the above i think some of the challenges is the perception that you're condoning obesity you know morbid obesity and you're condoning unhealthy behaviors mm -hmm. and there is certainly some of that there is certainly some of that there is that you know like there are standards of beauty that are culturally sanctioned and we can stand and say we can reconfigure the standard of beauty as much as we like, but it's still not going to be a palatable standard of beauty to everybody. That also doesn't mean that it's a palatable standard of beauty to nobody. And I think that there's a lot of a lot of hatred associated with kind of rejecting some of that and saying, well, you know, those bitchy, skinny models, you know, or those girls who always starve themselves. Well, you know, if, if health at every size is health at every size, then it is, in fact, at every size. Right. So maybe we shouldn't judge people who are thin and any more than we should judge people who are heavy, right? You know, there maybe we should just accept people as they are and they come in different bodies and they come in different colorings and they come in different sizes and styles and that's what they are. That's the sort of the richness of the human tapestry. And I think there's that one downside. I think the other downside is the, um, well, you know, then I can eat whatever I want and I can do whatever I like. And the reality is, is that none of us can do whatever we want and whatever we like at any given time. I think adulthood is a lot of doing the right thing and doing the things that we must do, you know, get up in the morning, brush our teeth, pay taxes. No one canceled any of those things, but also being accepting that, having more, it, it, it's kind of getting away from that black and white thinking and more into that shades of gray thinking that there's no such thing as a good food or bad food or whatever I like or whatever I don't like. It's more about 
everyday foods and sometimes foods and figuring out how to celebrate with at times with certain foods and then at other times how to say what's the most nourishing choice that I can make for my body at this time mm -hmm. um, within whatever confines I have mm -hmm. as opposed to what is a good or a bad choice. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot in what you just said. And, and really, it's a, in many ways, a misconception. I guess, like you said, it could happen, but, or some people could take it as condoning. And it's like, if we support freedom and autonomy without judgment, like right. people's bodies, right, they get to do right. absolutely, with, they get to choose, right, they get to choose. And yeah, when you first were exposed to intuitive eating or health at every size, did you have any, were you like, yes, I'm totally on board? Or were you like, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. Like what was yeah. your process? That was a little skeptical because I thought about, you know, what, well, what if your blood pressure is through the roof? What if your A1C is through the roof? Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I, I'm skeptical of all movements. Some of that is my, you know, Soviet refugee background. Anytime people say social justice and grab a banner, I start looking for a place to escape through the bath because <laughs> I, I grew up in a culture where there was a lot of, you know, under the banner of righteousness, we are going to, you know, massacre a whole bunch of people. So, um, I tend to be skeptical of organized anything, but mm -hmm. so I was like, let me, let me read more about this. Let me learn more about this. Let me look at the actual data behind it. Actually, funnily enough, yesterday night, I was at a work dinner with the, my, with the bariatric team I work with. We had a dinner with a bunch of primary care doctors and we're explaining to them kind of how we approach treatment of obesity and it really looking at, you know, at it as a chronic illness, a chronic multidisciplinary condition, and really looking at a treatment of obesity from this multidisciplinary standpoint. And we were speaking about how this is a lifelong problem that we're managing. This is not, there is no magical solution. Surgery is a tool, you know, various diet plans potentially could be a tool, but also, you know, that this health at every science movement, it does not undo the work of working to manage obesity. Rather, it supports the management of chronic illness and the management of chronic wellness. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to, you know, sort of that metaphor of brushing your teeth because you have to do it, you know, it's about preservation of your dental health. And if you don't have good dental health, you might have some really significant health problems. And when our dentist asks us, do you brush your teeth twice a day and do you floss? They're not doing it to be mean. They want to make sure that we're staying on top of our dental health. And generally, we don't have too big of feelings about it until we get to the dentist office. Then we have all sorts of big feelings, mostly negative. But it's sort of the same kind of the same way I tend to think about it is that eating is something we have to do to nourish our bodies. So let's try to figure out how to do that in in a way that nourishes our bodies in the best way possible and nourishes our mental and our physical health in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, I think a lot of people have various reactions to even if they ever hear me on the podcast saying at its root, it's a social justice movement. And frankly, most movements are movements with people and people are, you know, human imperfect humans that can yeah. get pretty extreme sometimes Absolutely. and can that's, that's something I've trying to learn about and it just doesn't feel like my expertise at all and yet like we, we have to understand these social contexts of which these discussions are have being had and Absolutely. there's some history of like the women's rights and voting rights social justice movement and how some of those ex got too extreme and sort of 
shunning and shaming people out of the movement mm-hmm. versus being able to say, like even what you're discussing or what you discussed mm-hmm. at that meeting is the way I've always thought about health at every size is like a framework or an umbrella that can open up some freedom and choice and help people unpair weight and health in this judgmental way. But Absolutely. then within that, then we have more freedom to say, because mm-hmm. in my experience, some people like find it really helpful to think about obesity as a disease and some people not as much. And that probably depends on it a whole bunch of factors, but yeah, we can absolutely use that treatment model too. Whereas I think a lot of times in health, every size based circles or like it's one or the other. And I hear you saying it doesn't have to be. And I would agree with that because if we think about how do we actually support autonomy, we respect the individual and uh, their individual right to figure out what treatment and approaches work best for them. Absolutely. And it's something we do a lot in the bariatric practice. And I find myself advocating for the patients because let's say that the, um, let's say the patient's starting weight was 300 pounds and they wanted to be 150 pounds after they had their sleep gastrectomy or their ruined by gastric bypass. And then they hit 200 pounds and they actually felt quite comfortable at that weight and they felt like they really liked what they looked like in the mirror and they really liked how they felt when they got up in the morning and they were able to do the things they wanted to do and so this is where myself and the dietitians a lot of times advocate for them with the surgeon and say look you know for your of course for your outcome data it would be ideal you know if all these patients 100% of patients hit goal weight within two years but it's the patient's body and the patient has a right to decide what they want their weight to be and the patient is comfortable at this weight they have reversed the medical conditions they were concerned about they feel really good about themselves they feel great and they feel most of all you know a sense of mastery and accomplishment and a sense of confidence in what they're putting in their mouth and how they're living their life and more power to them this is the time where we get to ride off into the sunset you know and wave fondly goodbye from the window and that's wonderful for them you know that may not be the goal weight in the eyes of the you know american society of metabolic and bariatric surgery or what would be ideal on paper but it is what is right for that particular patient and that is something to celebrate right well and those benchmarks are arbitrary right like who's to say like 150 ever made sense for that person's body like that's made up (laughs) like it's yeah yeah absolutely yeah um do you think that we're seeing positive shifts in the way that we view weight and health in this field like do you think do you do you feel hopeful about it? I do. I do actually. Um, it was really impressive to sit in a room full of primary care doctors and hear them ask. You know, I never doubted their compassion. Yeah, I, I mean, I I own my bias. I'm I'm married to a doctor. I come from a dynastic medical family, and I married into a dynastic medical family. And I never doubt physicians' compassion and their drive to help their patients. But it was lovely to be in a room of filled with primary care doctors and some specialists, endocrinologists, cardiologists, hematology oncology doctors who were passionately advocating for their patients from the standpoint of health at every size and from the standpoint of trying to make their lives better, not trying to make them fit into like some arbitrary BMI category. And so I definitely think we're seeing a lot of that shift and especially with women, you know, that that we're getting away from that model of if there's something wrong with you when you're a woman, either it's because you're fat or it's all in your head or both. Right. And sometimes mm-hmm. you get the two for one. You're crazy and fat, which you should change. Mm-hmm. So, you know, please come back to see me when you're healthy and thin and not and safe. 
whatever and that means. No emotions. <laughs> and have no emotions. Like, please have a broken leg and weigh 120 pounds. <laughs> Like yeah. that, then I would be happy to help you. So I think we're definitely <laughs> Until getting then, you from yeah. that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that that's been my experience too. I always like to just gauge what others that I respect are thinking because I think like we all were trained in a similar way, which is like weight and health are the same. And so we've had to, we're all on a, this journey, right? That mm-hmm. of seeking out a different way to think about it. And yeah medical professionals medical doctors like they had the same to them probably just arguably less even less time to seek out alternative ways of thinking about it because they have to learn like a million body systems <laughs> and they were trained that it's like risk factor it's not that they're trying to and these new they don't necessarily have the time to have these nuanced conversations so it's so encouraging to hear and that's been my experience too people want to know they want to hear and they're not going to do it perfectly and I think that's where it comes up against the social justice piece and like saying the right thing in the language and people get so worried um, versus like, no, let's meet people where they're at and, and look at all the things they're willing to do to learn and grow. I think it's absolutely cool to hear. Absolutely. Awesome. What would you say are like the main things you want people to know if there's, let's just say, even if they're a professional and they're listening to this and they're like, trying to make sense of health at every size, but I also, let's say I work with people who want weight loss. What do you want them to know as they're learning these nuanced topics? Well, any take homes for them? I think the most important thing is, you know, what do you want and what does your patient want, right? If, I, if I'm speaking to a professional, you know, you might have a preconceived notion in mind, and I think we all do, of what you know the patients are going to bring into the room, right? You've pre-charted. You you maybe this is your first time meeting this patient, or maybe this is your twentieth time meeting this patient, and you've looked at the previous notes and you kind of have an idea of what's going on. And so the patient walks into the room and they're bringing something entirely different. And so you have to reconfigure. You have to stop. You have to listen. And the question you have to ask yourself is: It's not important what I want for this patient. What's important is what does this patient want? What do they want for themselves? What are their goals? And how will this journey, whatever journey they're on, whether it's a journey of embracing their size, whether it's a journey of learning to love their body, whether it's a journey of coping with, you know, a disease that has nothing to do with eating and weight, what is their goal and how can I support them in their goals and what can I do to help them achieve what they're looking for? And I think sometimes we get so, especially, you know, for those of us, I think, who work in like a you know, in a, in a university medical center with, you know, the big names and the research and the raw, you know, and the, the metrics, we, we get caught up in the, you know, well, the, the experts say this and the data says this. That's great. That's useful. That informs our work. However, the person sitting in front of us, their journey is unique. And how can we support their journey? What can we do to affect change that's meaningful for them? And that's going to be a lot more meaningful than whatever an expert says. And they might say to us, you know, listen, lady, I'm not interested in X, Y, and Z. I don't want to do X, Y, and Z. And here's why. And so then we have to respect it within reason. Yeah. You know, we have to figure out, you know, within reason how we how we respect them. You know, that doesn't mean that if somebody says, you know, I want to jump off the nearest bridge, we should support that. We should figure out why they feel that way and what we can do to help them not feel that way. But if they're saying, you know, I want to stop treatment. I don't want to have this procedure. 
I don't want to, you know, lose weight anymore, or I want to gain weight, or I want to lose weight because this and this, you know, how can I help you get to where you're going? What can I do to support your growth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Flexibility, curiosity, and putting aside our own agenda, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't say I was, I didn't, tell you, I was going to ask a question about this, but now I'm compelled to ask about how often you're working with people who are on or considering taking these new GLP-1 agonist medications or Wagovis, Manjaros, and Ozempic. Just what you've learned so far about those those meds um, and navigating that on their health and, and or weight journey. Uh, quite a bit. You know, there are some patients who have really significant GI side effects. There's many who don't. And there, it was the most poignant feedback I've gotten has been from patients who have said, I never knew what it was like to be full until I took this medication. Like what a gift to not be hungry all the time. And it moves me to tears because all of my endocrine patients, you know, who uh, they don't, there are signals that regulate hunger and satiety don't work properly. Leptin and ghrelin don't work properly. So these glucagon one uh, receptor agonists, they really do help. And they feel like I ate and I was full. And that, that sort of, you know, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. Yeah. I ate when I was hungry and I stopped when I was full and I wasn't obsessed with food. Mm-hmm. What a gift that was. So I think there are some patients for whom this is a wonderful opportunity. There are some patients for whom this is, you know, doesn't work for a variety of reasons, the GI side effects, the, you know, the other, you know, issues that might come up, um, you know, no medication is an entirely benign, but I think it's a wonderful opportunity for people if, if they're willing to, you know, explore it and they're a good candidate for it. I think it's very useful. What troubles me about it is the pop culture aspect that this is like, oh, you know, we're going to lose weight quickly, you know, the Kim Kardashians of the world are doing it, or the, you know, the Hollywood movie stars of the world are doing it. And so we should all jump on that bandwagon. And that, uh, that worries me greatly, but that worries me greatly about pop culture in general. I think that, you know, a lot of our public figures are not people we should admire or emulate in any way, shape or form, but they're out there and they have a platform and, you know, that, and nowadays with social media and technology, it's very easy to have a platform. That it is. Yes. Yeah. And I think the main thing I've seen is just the alternative, which is like, and I actually do see many of the communities I'm in that are more weight inclusive, health at every size, heavily focused. Some, some embracing, I think of these drugs as a potential tool. And there's, I think a lot of fear, a lot of concern, you know, potentially rightfully so in some areas, but then also can we help people navigate like this nuance and say, yeah, I want to take a self-trust intuitive based approach and I want to use this tool, whether it's these meds or whether it's surgery. And can we, can we not shame people for that? And I think we can, but I think a lot of people struggle with navigating that. And like, even I could be projecting my own stuff, but I think some of it is like, what will people think if I'm having these conversations, you know, Mm -hmm. or or my clients or patients are taking these. And it's like, I think we have to trust them. I think we have to trust that they can handle it. Whatever happens. Absolutely. I think we have to trust them. I think we have to trust that they can handle it, whatever happens. And I think that part of health at every size is also, I think, embracing non-judgmentally other people's journeys and, and not, you know, unfortunately, that there's a lot of people who tend to be like, well, it's okay to lose weight if you're losing it for health reasons. But if you're losing it for vanity reasons, that's not okay. But who am I to say 
what's okay or what's not okay for another person's body. Again, you know, we have to honor, we have to honor their autonomy. Yeah. Well, and you know, we live in a world where it's easier in a variety of ways to have a smaller body. Like you're going to get less experiences of weight bias and things like that. And so who's to say that that it, you could call it vanity, or you could say it's a desire to have an easier day to day potentially. And that's not wrong. Right. right. And like you said, it could also just be, I want to look different. And who's to say that that's so wrong if we're really supporting autonomy. So yeah. Absolutely. Yes. All right. So we're going to move on to our motivation questions that we ask all our guests. So first is our intrinsic motivation question. What is one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? You do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior itself. Like you enjoy it, find it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Riding my stationary bike. I'm Mm -hmm. obsessive about spinning um, Uh because I, it just, it's free dopamine. It's just, (laughs) It's glorious. It's glorious. It's free dopamine. I started doing it during the pandemic and it allowed me to travel when we couldn't travel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before that, I used to do um, one of sort of the branded exercise classes. I used to do Orange Theory and I love that too. But during the pandemic, I started doing the, uh, we bought the Nordic track version of the Peloton and Mm -hmm. it takes me to Ireland and Iceland and Taiwan and Japan and all the places we couldn't go when we were all, you know, locked down in place and it was wonderful. And so I do it for the inherent joy of it for that it just gives me so much joy the other thing is cooking and baking and it's very different than the work that I do because sometimes you know in in our work as psychologists we plant seeds but we don't necessarily get to see them grow and um with cooking and baking there's a result and I'm also a bit of a kinesthetic learner so it allows me to you know use that set of skills that I don't necessarily get to do in my professional work. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. I've heard another colleague say the same thing about, I'm not necessarily there with cooking and baking, but it makes a lot of sense. And I think, yeah. And and it's a creativity, right? Like creativity can be very healing. And wait, I have one question about this travel. So is it on the screen and you're seeing like you're biking through these different places? Tell me about this. It's amazing. So, um, so I just finished a series that was in Switzerland Uh and last time I was in Switzerland was over 20 years ago. And you're literally, Uh there's a, the instructor is riding a bike and there's another person who is filming you, who's wearing a camera headset, who is riding behind them. And so you see a little bit of their arms on the shot and they have a, they have a smart treadmill, a smart elliptical and a smart bike and I bought we bought the bike because my husband and I both used it and then our kids now actually jump on it too and it was just more versatile for all of us and so you get on the bike and you pick a country and you pick a type of workout you want to do and so this morning I finished Switzerland and I was on a mountain I was on a mountain and um, you know like in oh gosh now I'm going to botch this. I'm going to pronounce it entirely incorrectly. Give me one second. I'm going to look yeah. up what this is called. This is I was in Zermatt. Oh, okay. And I was on a mountain and I was bicycling up a mountain in my basement and it was glorious. And I That's do cool. this. Um, I have my ritual. I get up around 435 in the morning. The whole house is sleeping and it's this still quiet, peaceful house. I can, you know, hear my husband's breath down the hall. I can hear like my kids and I tiptoe downstairs. I change into my workout clothes quietly in the dark. I tiptoe downstairs. I grab my water bottle and I tiptoe into the basement. And in the stillness of that pre-dawn hour is my time. And I hop on the bike 
and I go to a country, I, I rarely do studio classes. I usually do the, um, you know, the distant travels. And then I go upstairs, you know, all sweaty and gross and start coffee and start breakfast. And I am like whistling and like, oh. like singing softly as I start about my day. And it just puts me in this great mood. And I miss it when I can't do it because I'm sick or one of the kids is sick or, um, you know, sometimes, you know, if we have to travel and I miss not doing it. So mm-hmm. I, I love having it as part of my routine. That's amazing. That sounds super cool. I always get different ideas on this podcast. I'm like, hmm, how would that work for me? It sounds really cool, though. I'm I'm gonna potentially look into that. I, so, I struggle with so exercising good. by myself at home. I used to do it, but I don't know. So I'll have to think about. I'll have to think about that. But that does I- sound. I loved the classes, but when the pandemic took them away, I had to come up with something else. And and, and I was like, I can't not. So what am I going to do? And I just, I mean, it's just so glorious. And I think also as mothers, right, you know, with fairly young families, it's really hard to carve out time that's your time. And this is, and I'm an early morning person anyway. I'm one of those like annoyingly perky morning people who's like, good morning. <laughs> um, so it's, it's my time. I, it just I, amplifies it yes, <laughs> even yes. more. It's so funny. Yes, yeah, I'm like, yes. The person hopping out of bed, my, my husband is like, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh yeah yeah I'm going to a running club like once a week now but it's like so it's great but it's I can't do it every day yeah or even multiple times and so yeah okay great good to know the next question is are from a should to a choose to question so this is an example of a behavior that used to be a should for you that maybe you struggled to do but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you either you value it, it's part of your identity, even if you don't necessarily always love it intrinsically. I used to dread doctor's appointments and avoid them, especially I've had multiple high-risk pregnancies. I've had a lot of obstetrical issues. And uh, so I used to dread doctor's appointments because inevitably I would have to psych myself up because I would get a lecture about how everything was connected to me being overweight even when it wasn't Wonderful. like it, it right. was like yeah. it was not like at all no. but I feel very strongly that like I'm a responsible adult you know capital R capital A um so I have to you know there are certain things I have to do and I have to model to my children and I'm diligent about making sure that their well visits you know are up to date and they go to the dentist regularly and my son has you know is on his like stage 25 of various orthodontra how expensive that is that's fun and um <laughs> so I go I now like do it I I choose to do it and I had to reframe it that I'm choosing to do this because my goal is health and being responsible for my body and so I, I I did all the all the things you know I I did I do my mammograms I do my you know I'm doing my uh, first colonoscopy later this year because I'm a little bit younger than the minimum age for it but I'm at a high risk because of uh, genetics and so I'm like okay you know we are going to choose to do this in the name of health and growth and responsibility as opposed to I should do this and I'm going to have all sorts of negative feelings about it. Yeah. How do you think you made that shift? I'm hearing you say some of it is just like, I really focus on the choice piece. Is there other things that you've done to help you just make sure you're making that? Focusing on the choice and thinking about also like the role that this plays um, with my family and, Mm -hmm. you know, what I want to teach uh, my children and I want them to be, you know, honor their bodies and honor their health and be stewards of their own bodies. And so that felt really, really important. Yeah, really honing in on your values for sure. Yeah. 
Okay, last question. A main part of our mission here on the podcast is to help more people reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous and connected lives. Can you share an example or two where having more trust with your body has allowed you to be more courageous and or more connected? Absolutely. I used to, I love sweets. I love desserts. And I used to have all sorts of negative thoughts about like, this is a bad choice. And you're a bad person if you're going to eat this dessert. And I mean, somebody who does, you know, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and CBT for a living. And I would have these thoughts running through my mind. So really, and it so I was at this very fancy uh, professional dinner last night and they served, you know, desserts. And I ate my chocolate cake with relish and gusto with my cup of coffee and I ate it and enjoyed it and stopped as soon as I was full and didn't feel compelled to finish every bite and it wasn't a big deal and I was able to have a nice chat with a colleague as I was doing it and then I was done and I moved on and it was just something that I did and that what really felt like growth that felt yeah. like something that yeah. had been, you know, sort of the anchor on my back for a long time. And now it no longer was. Yeah. It's connection with yourself and your body and what you want. It's connection with other people. You can be in this conversation without being like, Oh, stressing about the cake. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. I love absolutely. That. Wonderful. Well, any final takeaways before we finish up our lovely conversation? I guess just uh, that I hope that if there's, you know, young women listening that, and I don't want to, I don't want to leave out men, but I think this is a tense in our culture. This tends to be much more of an issue for women than it is for men. If I could send a message to, you know, any 20 year old, you know, to focus more on enjoying their body and loving their body and focusing on what makes their body feel good and what makes their body feel strong and what makes their body feel in control. And then that inherently will lead them to be their healthiest self and their best self and be damned the scale and be damned, you know, the latest diet of choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much for being Absolutely. here today. It's been very fun. I have loved it. Thank you so much for having me. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please. Review from a mom's podcast. Make something from a mom's podcast, please. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.